Chapter Twenty, Part One of the Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Ugaretz. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Twenty, Part One. Keeling Island Coral Formations. Keeling Island. Singular appearance, scanty flora, transport of seeds, birds and insects, ebbing and flowing springs, fields of dead coral, stones transported in the roots of trees, great crab, stinging corals, coral-eating fish, coral formations, lagoon islands or atolls, depth at which reef-building corals can live, vast areas interspersed with low coral islands, subsidence of their foundations, barrier reefs, fringing reefs, Conversion of fringing reefs into barrier reefs and into atolls, evidence of changes in level, breaches in barrier reefs, Maldiva atolls, their peculiar structure, dead and submerged reefs, areas of subsidence and elevation, distribution of volcanoes, subsidence slow and vast in amount. April 1st. We arrived in view of the Keeling or Cocos Islands situated in the Indian Ocean and about 600 miles distant from the coast of Sumatra. This is one of the lagoon islands, or atolls, of coral formation, similar to those in the low archipelago which we passed near. When the ship was in the channel at the entrance, Mr. Leesk, an English resident, came off in his boat. The history of the inhabitants of this place, in as few words as possible, is as follows. About nine years ago, Mr. Hare, a worthless character, brought from the East Indian archipelago a number of Malay slaves, which, now including children, amount to more than a hundred. Shortly afterwards, Captain Ross, who had before visited these islands in his merchant ship, arrived from England, bringing with him his family and goods for settlement. Along with him came Mr. Leesk, who had been a mate in his vessel. The Malay slaves soon ran away from the islet on which Mr. Hare was settled and joined Captain Ross's party. Mr. Hare, upon this, was ultimately obliged to leave the place. The Malays are now nominally in a state of freedom, and certainly are so, as far as regards their personal treatment, but in most other points they are considered as slaves. From their discontented state, from the repeated removals from islet to islet, and perhaps also from a little mismanagement, things are not very prosperous. The island has no domestic quadruped excepting the pig, and the main vegetable production is the coconut. The whole prosperity of the place depends on this tree, the only exports being oil from the nut and the nuts themselves, which are taken to Singapore and Mauritius, where they are chiefly used when grated in making curries. On the coconut also the pigs, which are loaded with fat, almost entirely subsist, as do the ducks and poultry. Even a huge land crab is furnished by nature with the means to open and feed on this most useful production. The ring-formed reef of the lagoon island is surmounted in the greater part of its length by linear islets. On the northern or leeward side there is an opening through which vessels can pass to the anchorage within. On entering the scene was very curious and rather pretty. Its beauty, however, entirely depended on the brilliancy of the surrounding colors. The shallow, clear, and still water of the lagoon, resting in its greater part on white sand, is, when illumined by a vertical sun, of the most vivid green. This brilliant expanse, several miles in width, 
is on all sides divided, either by a line of snow-white breakers from the dark heaving waters of the ocean, or from the blue vault of heaven by the strips of land, crowned by the level tops of the coconut trees. As a white cloud here and there affords a pleasing contrast with the azure sky, so in the lagoon bands of living coral darken the emerald green water. The next morning, after anchoring, I went on shore on Direction Island. The strip of dry land is only a few hundred yards in width. On the lagoon side there is a white calcareous beach, the radiation from which under this sultry climate was very oppressive, and on the outer coast a solid broad flat of coral rock served to break the violence of the open sea. Excepting near the lagoon, where there is some sand, the land is entirely composed of rounded fragments of coral. In such a loose, dry, stony soil, the climate of the intertropical regions alone could produce a vigorous vegetation. On some of the smaller islets nothing could be more elegant than the manner in which the young and full-grown coconut trees, without destroying each other's symmetry, were mingled into one wood. A beach of glittering white sand formed a border to these fairy spots. I will now give a sketch of the natural history of these islands, which, from its very paucity, possesses a peculiar interest. The coconut tree, at first glance, seems to compose the whole wood. There are, however, five or six other trees. One of these grows to a very large size, but from the extremes of softness of its wood is useless. Another sort affords excellent timber for shipbuilding. Besides the trees, the number of plants is exceedingly limited and consists of insignificant weeds. In my collection, which includes, I believe, nearly the perfect flora, there are twenty species, without reckoning a moss, lichen, and fungus. To this number two trees must be added, one of which was not in flower, and the other I only heard of. The latter is a solitary tree of its kind, and grows near the beach, where without doubt the one seed was thrown up by the waves. A gilandina also grows on only one of the islets. I do not include in the above list the sugar-cane, banana, some other vegetables, fruit-trees, and imported grasses, as the islands consist entirely of coral, and at one time must have existed as mere water-washed reefs, all their terrestrial productions must have been transported here by the waves of the sea. In accordance with this, the florula has quite the character of a refuge for the destitute. Professor Henslow informs me that of the twenty species, nineteen belong to different genera, and these again to no less than sixteen families. Footnote 1 these plants are described in the Annals of Natural History, Volume 1, 1838, page 337. In Holman's Travels, an account is given, on the authority of Mr. A. S. Keating, who resided twelve months on these islands, of the various seeds and other bodies which have been known to have been washed on shore. Footnote 2, Holman's Travels, Volume 4, page 378. Seeds and Plants from Sumatra and Java, have been driven up by the surf on the windward side of the islands. Among them have been found the Kimiri, native of Sumatra and the peninsula of Malacca, the coconut of Balsi, known by its shape and size, the Dadas, which is planted by the Malays with the pepper vine, the latter entwining round its trunk, and supporting itself by the prickles on its stem, the soap tree, the castor oil plant, trunks of the sago palm, and various kinds of seeds unknown to the Malays settled on the islands. These are all supposed to have been driven by the northwest monsoon to the coast of New Holland, and thence to these islands by the southeast trade wind. 
large masses of java teak and yellow wood have also been found, besides immense trees of red and white cedar and the blue gumwood of New Holland in perfectly sound condition. All the hardy seeds, such as creepers, retain their germinating power, but the softer kinds, among which is the mangosteen, are destroyed in the passage. Fishing canoes, apparently from Java, have at times been washed on shore. It is interesting thus to discover how numerous the seeds are which coming from several countries are drifted over the wide ocean. Professor Henslow tells me he believes that nearly all the plants which I brought from these islands are common littoral species in the East Indian archipelago. From the direction, however, of the winds and currents, it seems scarcely possible that they could have come here in a direct line. If, as suggested with much probability by Mr. Keating, they were first carried towards the coast of New Holland, and thence drifted back together with the productions of that country, the seeds, before germinating, must have travelled between 1,800 and 2,400 miles. Chamiso, when describing the Radak archipelago situated in the western part of the Pacific, states that the sea brings to these islands the seeds and fruits of many trees, most of which have not yet grown here. The greater part of these seeds appear to have not yet lost the capability of growing. Footnote 3. Kotzebue's First Voyage. Volume 3, page 155. It is also said that palms and bamboos from somewhere in the torrid zone and trunks of northern firs are washed on shore. These firs must have come from an immense distance. These facts are highly interesting. It cannot be doubted that if there were land birds to pick up the seeds when first cast on shore, and a soil better adapted for their growth than the loose blocks of coral, that the most isolated of the lagoon islands would, in time, possess a far more abundant flora than they now have. The list of land animals is even poorer than that of the plants. Some of the islets are inhabited by rats, which were brought in a ship from the Mauritius wrecked here. These rats are considered by Mr. Waterhouse as identical with the English kind, but they are smaller and more brightly colored. There are no true land birds, for a snipe and a rail, Rallus philippensis, though living entirely in the dry herbage, belong to the order of waders. Birds of this order are said to occur on several of these small low islands in the Pacific. At Ascension, where there is no land bird, a rail, Porphyrio simplex, was shot near the summit of the mountain, and it was evidently a solitary straggler. At Tristan de Cunha, where, according to Carmichael, there are only two land birds, there is a coot. From these facts I believe that the waders, after the innumerable web-footed species, are generally the first colonists of small isolated islands. I may add, however, that whenever I notice birds, not of oceanic species, very far out at sea, they always belong to this order, and hence they would naturally become the earliest colonists of any remote point of land. Of reptiles I saw only one small lizard. Of insects I took pains to collect every kind. Exclusive of spiders, which were numerous, there were thirteen species. Of these, one only was a beetle. Footnote 4. The thirteen species belong to the following orders. In the Coleoptera, a minute elater, Orthoptera, Agrillus and Ablata, Hemiptera, one species, Homoptera, two, Neuroptera, a Chrysopa, Hymenoptera, two ants, Lepidoptera nocturna, a Diopia, and a Pteraphorus, Diptera, two species. A small ant swarmed by thousands under the loose dry blocks of coral and was the only true insect which was abundant. 
although the productions of the land are thus scanty, if we look to the waters of the surrounding sea, the number of organic beings is indeed infinite. Chamiso has described the natural history of a lagoon island in the Radak archipelago, and it is remarkable how closely its inhabitants in number and kind resemble those of Keeling Island. Footnote 5. Kotzbue's First Voyage. Volume 3, page 222. There is one lizard and two waders, namely a snipe and curlew. Of plants there are nineteen species, including a fern, and some of these are the same with those growing here, though on a spot so immensely remote, and in a different ocean. The long strips of land forming the linear islets have been raised only to that height to which the surf can throw fragments of coral, and the wind heap up calcareous sand. The solid flat of coral rock on the outside, by its breadth, breaks the first violence of the waves, which otherwise in a day would sweep away these islets and all their productions. The ocean and the land seem here struggling for mastery. Although terra firma has obtained a footing, the denizens of the water think their claim at least equally good. In every part one meets hermit crabs of more than one species, carrying on their backs the shells which they have stolen from the neighboring beach. Footnote 6 the large claws or pincers of some of these crabs are most beautifully adapted, when drawn back, to form an operculum to the shell, nearly as perfect as the proper one originally belonging to the molluscous animal. I was assured, and as far as my observations went I found it so, that certain species of the hermit crab always use certain species of shells. Overhead, Numerous gannets, frigate-birds, and terns rest on the trees, and the wood from the many nests and from the smell of the atmosphere might be called a sea-rookery. The gannets, sitting on their rude nests, gaze at one with a stupid yet angry air. The noddies, as their name expresses, are silly little creatures. But there is one charming bird. It is a small snow-white tern, which smoothly hovers at the distance of a few feet above one's head, its large black eyes scanning with quiet curiosity your expression. Little imagination is required to fancy that so light and delicate a body must be tenanted by some wandering fairy spirit. Sunday, April 3rd. After service, I accompanied Captain Fitzroy to the settlement, situated at the distance of some miles on the point of an islet thickly covered with tall coconut trees. Captain Ross and Mr. Leask live in a large barn-like house, open at both ends and lined with mats made of woven bark. The houses of the Malays are arranged along the shore of the lagoon. The whole place had rather a desolate aspect, for there were no gardens to show the signs of care and cultivation. The natives belong to different islands in the East Indian archipelago, but all speak the same language. We saw the inhabitants of Borneo, Celebes, Java, and Sumatra. In color they resemble the Tahitians, from whom they do not widely differ in features. Some of the women, however, show a good deal of the Chinese character. I liked both their general expressions and the sound of their voices. They appeared poor, and their houses were destitute of furniture, but it was evident from the plumpness of the little children that coconuts and turtle afford no bad sustenance. On this island the wells are situated from which ships obtain water. At first sight it appears not a little remarkable that the fresh water should regularly ebb and flow with the tides it has even been imagined that sand has the power of filtering the salt from the sea-water. These ebbing wells are common on some of the low islands in the West Indies. The compressed sand, or porous coral rock, is permeated like a sponge with the salt water, but the rain which falls on the surface 
must sink to the level of the surrounding sea, and must accumulate there, displacing an equal bulk of the salt water. As the water in the lower part of the great sponge-like coral mass rises and falls with the tides, so will the water near the surface, and this will keep fresh, if the mass be sufficiently compact to prevent much mechanical admixture. But where the land consists of great loose blocks of coral with open interstices, if a well be dug, the water, as I have seen, is brackish. After dinner we stayed to see a curious half-superstitious scene acted by the Malay women. A large wooden spoon, dressed in garments, and which had been carried to the grave of a dead man, they pretend becomes inspired at the full of the moon, and will dance and jump about. After the proper preparations, the spoon, held by two women, became convulsed, and danced in good time to the song of the surrounding children and women. It was a most foolish spectacle, but Mr. Leask maintained that many of the Malays believed in its spiritual movements. The dance did not commence until the moon had risen, and it was well worth remaining to behold her bright orbs so quietly shining through the long arms of the coconut trees as they waved in the evening breeze. These scenes of the tropics are in themselves so delicious that they almost equal those dearer ones at home, to which we are bound by each best feeling of the mind. The next day I enjoyed myself in examining the very interesting, yet simple, structure and origin of these islands. The water being unusually smooth, I wandered over the outer flat of dead rock as far as the living mounds of coral, on which the swell of the open sea breaks. In some of the gullies and hollows there were beautiful green and other colored fishes, and the forms and tints of many of the zoophytes were admirable. It is excusable to grow enthusiastic over the infinite numbers of organic beings with which the sea of the tropics, so prodigal of life, teems. Yet I must confess I think those naturalists who have described, in well-known words, the submarine grottoes decked with a thousand beauties, have indulged in rather exuberant language. April 6th. I accompanied Captain Fitzroy to an island at the head of the lagoon. The channel was exceedingly intricate, winding through fields of delicately branched corals. We saw several turtle, and two boats were then employed in catching them. The water was so clear and shallow that although at first a turtle quickly dives out of sight, yet in a canoe or boat under sail, the pursuers, after no very long chase, come up to it. A man standing ready in the bow, at this moment dashes through the water upon the turtle's back. Then, clinging with both hands by the shell of its neck, he is carried away till the animal becomes exhausted and is secured. It was quite an interesting chase to see the two boats thus doubling about, and the men dashing head foremost into the water trying to seize their prey. Captain Moresby informs me that in the Chagos archipelago, in the same ocean, the natives, by a horrible process, take the shell from the back of the living turtle. It is covered with burning charcoal, which causes the outer shell to curl upwards. It is then forced off with a knife, and before it becomes cold, flattened between boards. After this barbarous process, the animal is suffered to regain its native element, where, after a certain time, a new shell is formed. It is, however, too thin to be of any service, and the animal always appears languishing and sickly. When we arrived at the head of the lagoon, we crossed a narrow islet, and found a great surf breaking on the windward coast. I can hardly explain the reason, but there is to my mind much grandeur in the view of the outer shores of these lagoon islands. There is a simplicity in the barrier-like beach, the margin of green bushes and tall coconuts, the solid flat of dead coral rock, strewed here and there with great loose fragments, 
and the line of furious breakers all rounding away towards either hand. The ocean throwing its waters over the broad reef appears an invincible, all-powerful enemy, yet we see it resisted and even conquered by means which at first seem most weak and inefficient. It is not that the ocean spares the rock of coral, the great fragments scattered over the reef and heaped on the beach whence the tall coconut springs plainly bespeak the unrelenting power of the waves. Nor are any periods of repose granted. The long swell caused by the gentle but steady action of the trade wind, always blowing in one direction over a wide area, causes breakers almost equaling in force those during a gale of wind in the temperate regions, and which never cease to rage. It is impossible to behold these waves without feeling a conviction that an island, though built of the hardest rock, let it be porphyry, granite, or quartz, would ultimately yield and be demolished by such an irresistible power. Yet these low, insignificant coral islets stand, and are victorious, for here another power, as an antagonist, takes part in the contest. The organic forces separate the atoms of carbonate of lime one by one from the foaming breakers, and unite them into a symmetrical structure. Let the hurricane tear up its thousand huge fragments, yet what will that tell against the accumulated labor of myriads of architects that work night and day, month after month. Thus do we see the soft and gelatinous body of a polypus, through the agency of the vital laws, conquering the great mechanical power of the waves of an ocean, which neither the art of man nor the inanimate works of nature could successfully resist. We did not return on board till late in the evening, for we stayed a long time in the lagoon, examining the fields of coral and the gigantic shells of the chama, into which, if a man were to put his hand, he would not, as long as the animal lived, be able to withdraw it. Near the head of the lagoon I was much surprised to find a wide area, considerably more than a mile square, covered with a forest of delicately branching corals, which, though standing upright, were all dead and rotten. At first I was quite at a loss to understand the cause. Afterwards it occurred to me that it was owing to the following rather curious combination of circumstances. It should, however, first be stated that corals are not able to survive even a short exposure in the air to the sun's rays, so that their upward limit of growth is determined by that of lowest water at spring tides. It appears, from some old charts, that the long island to windward was formerly separated by wide channels into separate islets. This fact is likewise indicated by the trees being younger on these portions. Under the former condition of the reef, a strong breeze, by throwing more water over the barrier, would tend to raise the level of the lagoon. Now it acts in a directly contrary manner, for the water within the lagoon not only is not increased by currents from the outside, but is itself blown outwards by the force of the wind. Hence it is observed that the tide near the head of the lagoon does not rise so high during a strong breeze as it does when it is calm. This difference of level, although no doubt very small, has, I believe, caused the death of those coral groves, which, under the former and more open condition of the outer reef, has attained the utmost limit of upward growth. End of chapter 20, part 1. Recording by Joseph Ugaritz, Brooklyn, New York, www.mountebank.org.